0: Before we look further at this passage together, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and therefore we do pray this morning that your word would be a blessing to each of us, that your spirit would take your word and speak to our hearts and to our lives this morning. So please do that good work of your word in our lives to your glory, we ask. Amen. Well, I don't know if you recognize this character. You know who he is? What's his name? Sid. Sid Sid the sloth, there we go. Uh, A familiar figure maybe to most of you, especially if you have responsibility for looking after small children. Uh, He's the lovable sloth, uh, featured, of course, in the Ice Age movies. Uh, He's not the uh, sharpest knife in the drawer, of course, but Sid makes up for his shortcomings. Uh, He's tenaciously loyal to those he cares about. And whilst Sid may be lovable, his basic character trait isn't. Uh, Sloths are by nature lazy and slovenly. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, the scientific name for sloths is Greek for slow feet. Uh, It's derived from the fact that they are the the world's slowest moving animal. Uh, According to National Geographic, it is so slow that algae grows on its fur. There we go, that is slow. Uh, For most part... uh, a sloth, uh, his life revolves around sleeping and eating. Maybe if some of you say that doesn't sound too bad. Uh, sloths have been observed sleeping up to 20 hours a day, which leaves little time for social activity. Therefore, uh, to describe someone as slothful is not the fast track to winning their affections. It's to say that they are lazy, they're sluggish, they're inattentive, and they're apathetic. But... This is how the writer of the letter to the Hebrews describes many of his readers. In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, You are slow to learn. Now, the word translated slow means slothful, sluggish, lethargic or lazy. Literally, the phrase reads, You are slothful in the ears. Imagine that. He's talking, of course, about their spiritual condition they are slow to learn from God's Word. Uh, They were hearing God's Word taught to them but it wasn't making an impact on their lives. It was in one ear and it was out the other. Uh, The lights were on but there was nobody home. Spiritually many of them had become sloths. And is this not a danger for Christians of every generation? Spiritually we're in danger of becoming sloths at times, lethargic, lazy, dull, slow moving, apathetic. Uh, the lights can be on, but the reality can be that nobody is home in terms of our Christian walk. Uh, we continue to do what Christians do, we go to church, etc. But in reality, we're just going through the motions. And when we come to these first century Jewish Christians, spiritually, many of them were told were sloths. And it meant that over time, they hadn't changed. They hadn't grown as they should. They hadn't matured in the faith. Now, rather than being mature enough to teach others, they need to be re-enlisted in the Sunday school. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Now when he says they ought to be teachers, what does he mean? Well, he's not referring to uh, preening preachers who stand up front and deliver sermons like this one. Rather, it's the teaching that any mature Christian should do. It's bringing God's word to bear on the lives of others. It's helping others to grow in their faith It's speaking godly wisdom into the life situations of others, encouraging faithfulness in Christ, applying the gospel to their lives. We saw a good example of this last year, if you recall, in the story, the true story of those two Christian sisters, uh, Corrie and Betsy Ten Boom. Uh, They were, as you know, two Dutch women imprisoned in the Nazi death camp, Auschwitz, And Betsy was the voice of encouragement to Corrie. Uh, She had, it seemed, a timely word from God's word for the darkest of moments, even in the fetid, flea-infested barracks. Betsy was constantly, if you like, teaching her sister Corrie, speaking God's word into her life. And that is what mature Christians do. You see, mature Christians have grown in their understanding of the gospel to the point where they're in in turn able to teach others, to help others to grow, to help others in their Christian walk. And sadly, over the years, these first century Jewish Christians had grown little in their understanding of their faith. As a result, they had no depth. And consequently, they were spiritually hobbled. They were unproductive. They were not in a position to help and instruct others. They themselves needed to go back, back to the basics. And so, uh, to ram his point home, the writer now uses an evocative image. Now, as a a parent of young boys, I am constantly looking uh, for ways to encourage their development. Uh, Distressingly, there are times when it seems that they're actually going backwards. They're regressing. And it's at times such as that that I pull out the superweapon, which has served every generation of parents well. I administer that stinging rebuke. You're acting like a baby. You need to grow up. And they wilt visibly before my eyes. But that is what the writer does here spiritually. He says to these Hebrew believers, you're acting like babies. You need to grow up. Look at how verse 12 continues. <clears throat> you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You see? They're like stunted infants. Uh, they're suffering from, the official term is, arrested development. Uh, Spiritually, they should be grown-ups by now, but instead, tragically, they're still babies. Although they've been Christians for quite a while now, they're spiritually immature. They were unable to take on this solid food of more stretching teaching. They were still only capable of spiritual milk the basics. Uh, Did you notice how a mature Christian was defined in verse 14. It speaks of the mature as, those who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Constant use of what? God's word, the teachings about righteousness. In other words, mature Christians are constantly using God's word in their lives. They're training themselves And they're being disciplined and shaped by God's word. Day after day, month after month, year after year, they keep digging deeper into God's word. And as they do so, it wonderfully changes them. They grow as Christians. They become spiritually wiser. They become more spiritually sensitive. And they can distinguish good from evil. In the cut and thrust of everyday life, They are guided by the gospel. God's word is truly a light to their feet and a lamp to their path. And it doesn't just guide themselves, they're mature Christians, they help others, they teach others as well. So, uh, for us here today, uh, some of us here today, many of us here today will be Christians. Here's some questions for each of us to pose to ourselves quietly in the privacy of our own hearts. If this letter of the Hebrews was written to me personally, what would the writer be saying to me? Would he be commending me or would he be challenging me? Am I growing as a Christian in my belief and my behavior? Am I deepening my understanding of what I believe week on week, year on year? Is it feeding through into mature Christian behavior? Am I not just looking to my own spiritual needs, but also to the needs of others? Or have I taken my foot off the accelerator? Am I going through the motions as a Christian? Have I become spiritually a sloth? Considering how long I've been a Christian, where should I be now? Now, for some of us here today who are Christians, this would be a word of encouragement. The writer would say to us, well done, keep going. But for other of us, us, the writer would be giving a word of challenge. He'd be saying, wake up, get going, get building. And that is where the writer goes next. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that leads to death and of faith in God. Now what's he saying? Uh, He's clearly not saying move on from Jesus. But he's saying move on from the basic teachings about Jesus. Dig deeper. Move on to a deeper understanding of Christ and the things of God. What he's saying is uh, repentance from sin and faith in God They're absolutely foundational truths. They're that essential, solid foundation. But then he's saying, don't leave it there. Build on them. Uh, Think about it. Uh, If you went to a construction site, saying Castle Hill, uh, work work had just begun. Uh, If you caught them at the beginning of the works, you'd see them laying the foundation. But say you came back a year later, and they were still laying the foundation Uh, wouldn't you think it a bit odd Uh, what if year after year they just kept digging up the foundation and relaying it well it would be absurd it would be absolutely ridiculous you lay a foundation so you can build on it and the point of the basic doctrines of the gospel is that we build on them we should grow And on them we should grow a building of mature Christian belief and behaviour. And if, after several years, there's still nothing more than a foundation, is not something wrong? The question to ask then is this. What does healthy building look like in a Christian's everyday life? What's healthy building? Uh, Just a few practical suggestions, although it's more than this. Firstly, of course... It's to be engaged seriously with God's Word, the Bible. That, if you like to use that term, to be sucking the marrow out of it. Out of whatever teaching we're getting, whether it's here on Sunday, uh, in our study groups, in our own private reading, thinking about what is God saying to me and working it through. Uh, another thing about uh, building on the foundation is taking prayer seriously. Carving out time to, prayer, time to pray. Uh, it's not easy. We're busy people, but making it a priority. Praying on our own privately, but also praying with other Christians. What is building like? It's also about being more active in our service of other people. Not just growing ourselves, looking inwards, but also looking out to the needs of others around us. Getting along other Christians who may be needing a helping hand, needing some encouragement. Especially maybe Christians who are younger in the Christian faith. Getting alongside encouraging. And therefore, we need to be applying the gospel to every area of our lives, our relationships, our finances, our work, and our future. That is what building looks like. So, uh, we've seen firstly the challenge to grow up, but why should we bother? And what is the danger if we don't? Secondly, then, we come to the warning don't fall away. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him It's a public disgrace. The slothful Christian who is not maturing spiritually is living very dangerously. Uh, If you were with us a few weeks ago, uh, do you recall what warning we saw in chapter 2 verse 1? It was the warning about drifting. Drifting away from the gospel. Drifting away. And of course drifting is a gradual thing. But this can in turn lead to something more decisive and something more dramatic. And it's what's described here in verse 6 as falling away. And to fall away means you turn your back on Jesus. You turn your back on the gospel. You renounce Christ. You say, I don't believe this anymore. We need to make a careful distinction here. Falling away is not just... If you like, backsliding for a time. Uh, One of my Christian friends had a sorry time when she went to university. Uh, She drifted away from living as a Christian should. Uh, The way she was living was not consistent with her own Christian belief. But the thing is this she didn't, during that era, renounce Christ, she didn't stop believing the gospel. She said afterwards how she felt the tension very keenly at the time between what she knew to be true in her heart and how she was actually behaving. She felt the tension at the time. And she also recalled how miserable she was because of it. But thankfully, she didn't fall away from Christ. The Lord in his goodness brought her back to her senses. And the Lord in his goodness brought her into contact with some Christians who got her back on track. So you see, falling away is not just backsliding for a time. And it's not just going through a period of doubt when we question what we believe and why. Falling away is something more decisive. It's something a step further beyond that. It's when believers turn their backs on Christ and his gospel. Again, verse verse 6 says this. They are crucifying the Son of God, all over again, and subjecting him to public disgrace. What's it saying? To fall away is to line up with the enemies of Christ. It's as if we are aligning ourselves with those who nailed Christ to the cross 2,000 years ago. To fall away is a deliberate act of turning against Christ. And verses 4 and 6, when we piece it together, tell us why it is something to be taken seriously. Verse 4 again. Uh, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, uh, then verse 6, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. In other words, there's no way back. There's no way back. But why? Uh, If you are with us when we looked at chapter 3. In verse 13, we were warned about that problem, weren't we, of our hearts becoming hardened. Well, it seems that in falling away, your heart becomes so hardened that you are unable to thereafter repent, to turn back. And this is God's judgment for doing what verse 6 says, for crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. It's deadly serious. It's the one thing to have have done that before we are professing faith as a Christian because then we didn't know any better. But it's another thing to do that having known the truth. And to do so is to bring God's judgment on ourselves. And that is a sobering thing. And I know each of us here will know people who, tragically, have fallen away. I myself had a good school friend who, it seemed, had become a Christian in his mid-teens. At the time, uh, he received a great deal of stick for his Christian faith, particularly from his father. His father derided him, uh, said it was just a phase he was going through, but to his credit, my friend held firm. Uh, Our lives went in different directions when I went off to university. Uh, However, we caught up from time to time when I was back in Manchester. Uh, Through his 20s and into his 30s, he was an active and valuable member of a good church. And it was only when I visited him in his mid-30s that something had changed. He announced to me those awful words, I don't believe it anymore. He said to me, I think it's all a load of subjective nonsense. Sadly, it seems that his dad had been right all those years earlier. Sadly for him, it had just been a phase he was going through, a phase albeit for 17 years. And when I tried to discuss it with him, I found a real resistance, even a hostility. He had no interest in earnestly working through his doubts. Instead, he wanted to spar, he wanted to duel, he wanted to fight. And his heart had become hard, and it stopped him coming back. And you will know, if you've ever talked to somebody like that, you just can't get through to them. They're hard as nails. They've heard it before, and they've rejected it, and they don't want a bar of it. And so you see, it is possible to burn your bridges with God, to leave no way back. And the way to do it is by renouncing your Christian faith and going back to being an enemy of God. So, do you see, that is why we cannot afford to be sloths. We can't afford to be slothful Christians because slothful Christians... Who don't mature are drifting Christians. And drifting Christians are in danger in due course of then falling away. And therefore, if we're drifting, we need to stop drifting. We need to get growing and we need to get building. Now, a question that maybe is looming in your minds is this Is this saying that you can lose your salvation? What about that true and valuable doctrine, uh, once saved, always saved? Because that is true, and it's a beautiful doctrine in the Bible. Well, there's no doubt that the people described in this passage in Hebrews today end up condemned. But the question is this, were they ever truly Christians? Uh, The only clues we have about their spiritual condition uh, before falling away are given to us in verses 4 to 5. But did you notice the terms used, they're a bit unusual and inconclusive. Did you notice it didn't say uh, it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who once were justified, born again, adopted into God's family if they fall away. It doesn't say that because those would be true descriptions of people who are truly Christians. But instead, look again at how they are described. Verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. They are unusual descriptions. It may well be that the writer still has in his mind the Israelite generation. In the wilderness in the time of Moses. Remember we saw them back in chapter 3 and 4. The writer held them up as an example of those who didn't make it. They didn't make it to the promised land. And the descriptions here in chapter 6 would fit that generation then. In spite of all their blessings and their experiences of God. The bottom line is that generation didn't have true saving faith. And consequently, they didn't make it. They didn't make it to the promised land. They had some sort of faith. Faith enough to follow Moses out of Egypt. But it wasn't a true faith. It wasn't a faith which kept going. A faith which kept going to the very end. It wasn't a true saving faith. Such is still true of people today. There is today a genuine saving faith which keeps going. But there is also a fake faith. It seems like the real deal for a while. But in due course, it gives up and it falls away. And such a person, it turns out, was never truly saved in the first place. Remember that definition we saw in chapter 3 of true faith, which Hebrews gives. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end, that is, of our lives, the confidence we had at first. True faith holds firmly to the end. It keeps going. Uh, Well, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. And here the writer uh, now paints a picture using words, uh, 50 words to be precise. The writer now uh, paints a picture using a parable. And he's doing this to make a point. He's trying to bring home to us the dire consequences of falling away. What he's trying to bring home to us now is ultimately it is dire because we face God's curse and his judgment. Look at verse 7, this mini parable he gives. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop, useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. As believers, we are like land on which the rain of God's word falls. But the sign of true faith is not just hearing the word. It's not just receiving the word. It's actually growing in response to the word. And as we drink in the rain of God's word, in some it produces that beautiful and good fruit of obedience, of faith, of godly character, of loving service. And they, in turn, bask in God's blessing. But tragically in others, the rain of God's word produces only thorns and thistles. Their response is slothful. They're slow to learn. They never get beyond the basics. They never grow up. And they end up falling away to a lost eternity. Tragically, they come under God's curse. So firstly, we've seen the challenge to grow up. Secondly, the warning not to fall away. Thirdly, we see the encouragement to press on. Verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case Things that accompany salvation. The writer is confident that they will come good. Uh, in times past, these believers have been doing well. Uh, They've been working for the Lord. They've been showing love to other believers. And in the present, many in this Christian community were still doing this. Verse 10, uh, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. But some of them had become sloths. Some of them had become spiritually lazy, inactive and complacent. And so he says to the sloths, then and now, don't dilly-dally, be diligent. Take this warning seriously. Let it spur you on to action. Uh, Look at verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Therefore, as we close, uh, let me address uh, three different types of people sitting here today. Uh, Firstly, A slothful Christian. Uh, For some of you here today, this is a hard word from the Lord. Uh, Spiritually, you become a sloth. Maybe uh, you've been coming to church for many years, but you are not growing spiritually. You're not actively engaged in God's word. You're not teaching and encouraging others to serve him. And there's little evidence of the fruit of the gospel in the field of your life. And therefore, God's gracious and timely warning is clear. Uh, If you like, this passage is a bit like smelling salts. It's designed to to jerk you awake to the seriousness of your situation. The righteous saying, don't continue to be a sloth, or else you're in danger of drifting and eventually falling away. Turn back to God. Ask for his forgiveness for your slothfulness. Get growing and get building. Re-engage with God's word. Be diligent and develop a life of service. The slothful Christian. Secondly, the sensitive Christian. For some here today, you have a sensitive conscience. Uh, you're not a sloth, but the warning has you worried. Those with genuine faith do respond to the warning. So be assured by the fact that you are worried because those with genuine faith do respond to the warning. You see, the the passage not only challenges sloths, but also guards against believers becoming sloths. In our Christian walk, we have our part to play. We are called to persevere. But God also plays his part And he helps us to persevere. And passages like this are one of those means by which he helps us to persevere. So we've seen the slothful Christian, uh, the sensitive Christian, finally the sincere seeker. Uh, For some here today, uh, you know you're not yet a Christian. Uh, You may be spiritually seeking. Do you see what this passage encourages you to do? This passage encourages you... Go to God's Word, the Bible. Go there for answers. It's the means of you growing in your understanding. Let the reign of God's word drench the ground of your heart. Let the reign of God's Word do its good work in bringing you answers to your fundamental questions of life. And I have no doubt that Jesus fulfills the deepest needs of your hearts. Therefore, go to God's Word for your answers. Uh, Maybe start by reading one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. As you read them, ask two questions. Who is Jesus? What does this tell me about Jesus? Secondly, what did Jesus come to do? Why did he come to earth? Uh, If you're interested, you could also speak to me about doing a a short uh, seven-week talk at Christianity Explained. It's a great way of exploring what the Christian faith is from God's Word. So in conclusion, what have we seen today? We've seen God's word is a priceless blessing. And God's word does indeed teach us. It encourages us, it challenges us, it rebukes us, and it helps us to grow. And therefore, may God's word do its good work in each of our hearts to our eternal benefit and to God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this passage today in many ways is a hard passage to hear. Uh, For some of us, it is a a stark dose of smelling salts. It is a challenge, it is a rebuke. But we also know that it's a means of your grace, a means by which you jolt us out of our our slothfulness, Uh, you bring us back to our senses, and you redirect our lives back onto their correct course. For those of us who have become slothful, please help us to re-engage in your word and with your word uh, so, re engage to a deeper level of Christian commitment uh, in your strength to live again uh, a full and committed life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who maybe are not slothful, but we're anxious as a result of this warning, please help us to realize this is your gracious means of preventing us becoming a sloth. And for those of us who are indeed seeking, please help us on that wonderful journey of exploring the good news of who Jesus is. Help us on that journey to see the beautiful truth from your word and to be touched by it and to be drawn ultimately to true faith in Jesus. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.